According to the Bible, God is many things. He has many characteristics. So if I asked you to finish the sentence, God is, what would you say? Quick, think, think of one phrase or one word. Tell your neighbor what it is very quickly. I'll give you 10 seconds to ex- finish the sentence, God is. All right, that's a very short 10 seconds. So, what did you say? All right, God is love, true. All right, God is the creator, also true. God is spirit, very true. How many of you here said, God is angry? I'm betting hardly anyone said that. You see, the idea that God is love is something that I think everyone connects with. Even the non-Christian has the idea that God is love. It seems to be such a fundamental thing to understanding who God is. But today's passage is profoundly different. Today's passage says that God is angry. Now, angry at us. Angry not in a flawed kind of way, not in a a human way, right? Anger that is irrational. No, God is not angry in that kind of way. The anger that we will see today is an anger that is always and only directed towards evil. Right? We get angry when things don't go our way, but God doesn't get angry in that same way. God gets angry always and only at evil. See, but the thing is, God's anger and wrath in our passage today is poured out, not at evil things out there. His anger and wrath are poured out on humanity, on us. So what is it that we have done which is so evil in his sight? First, we have to recap the context of our passage today. Now, at the end of last week, we read these words from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Have a look in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel, the good news that Paul believed in and preached, is God's power to save everyone who believes. Those who trust not their own goodness or good works, but what God in Jesus Christ has done for them alone. Now this is the good news. There is no other way to be saved. We then open up chapter 1 verse 18 of our passage and we notice that the first word there is the word for. Now the word for joins what was said about to be said, the argument that is about to be made with what was previously said. Paul has just basically said that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. So naturally the question comes up here, why do we need to be saved? And why is it only Jesus who can do it? Now today, I'm going to be answering that first question. Why do we need to be saved? Now the rest of the book of Romans answers the question, why is it only Jesus who can do it? So back in chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 18, why do we need to be saved? And the answer is because God is angry, super angry. Have a look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Like a good lawyer, 
Paul here lays out the charges against us. God is super angry at humanity, angry at the ways in which we have rebelled against him, angry at how we have suppressed the truth. What is that truth? Verses 19 to 20 spell it out. The truths about God as revealed in creation. See, what the Bible teaches us about creation, our world, makes the sciences possible and, and worthwhile. Because God has made for us an orderly creation that can be known and investigated. And here's the point that Paul's make, Paul makes. Creation reveals enough about God to make it inexcusable that we do not worship him. What do we do with this knowledge? We suppress it. According to verse 21, we do not honor God or give thanks to him. And in verse 22, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Paul says in verse 25 that we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship the creature rather than the creator. Instead of bowing down before the immortal God, we swap him out and bow down before temporary created things. This is known as idolatry. For Paul in his days, idols were literal carved images in stone and wood. People would literally bow down before them. And in many parts of our world today, idols are constantly bowed down to. But in our Western world, we think that we are past that. We're more educated, we're more refined in our understanding, more intelligent than to think that we should owe our allegiances to a statue of some mythical being. Or are we that different? See, idolatry isn't about the physical act of bowing down before something. It's primarily about our heart's allegiance. And in that way, idols are everywhere around us. You see, when we owe allegiance, when we give allegiance to something other than God, we are, we are being idolatrous. So in Paul's time... They, they worshipped an idol named Artemis, the god of money. Right? People today worship the same god, only we bow down before our timesheets at work, before our careers that we are pursuing, before the bank balance that we are building up to find our security. Another example is Aphrodite, right? the goddess of love and sex. It was well known in Corinth that at the top of one of their mountains was a temple to Aphrodite which employed temple prostitutes. Sex acts were performed as part of religious devotion. But while those temples are gone and the temple prostitutes are gone, in 2018 we are very much a society which worships the gods of sex. And there are many other gods in our world today. The god of image. People worship this god at the gym constantly, watching their diets, endlessly scrolling through Instagram, looking at the perfect bodies and lives of our heroes online. The god of food. Everyone these days is a foodie. You can't be on MasterChef without worshipping food. And the list goes on and on. And so what does God do in response? We read a little phrase three times. It's in verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over. God's punishment for this idolatry is to give us over to our desires and wants. And like spoilt children whose parents can never say no, 
the result is disastrous. You can see it in verses 29 to 31. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, right? Constantly looking at what others have and yearning for it. Murder, not just the physical act of killing someone, but also, as Jesus says in the Gospels, hating others in our hearts. Strife and conflict, deceit and lies, malicious, mean, cruel intentions and actions. And the list goes on and on and on. God's judgment is to give us over to what we want. And it ends in brokenness, the destruction of our lives, our communities, and our world. Now, I have to mention verses 26 to 27. God gives humans over to the lusts of their hearts. And it is articulated so clearly by modern pop theologian Taylor Swift, who, swing, who sings about New York, you can want who you want, boys and boys and girls and girls. Right? In New York, you can choose whichever sexual partner you'd like, whether they are the opposite gender or the same. Homosexuality is listed here by Paul as the first and most recognizable ways that we see the judgment of God the brokenness of this world, and the brokenness of our disordered desires. I want to be clear about this, and I want to be careful about this as well, because I know that there are a lot of misunderstandings about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And I know, I know that there are people even here who might struggle with same-sex attraction. God made us sexual beings. And sexual desire is a good thing. But at the heart of idolatry is taking something which is good and making it ultimate. And when we make our sexual desires ultimate, when we wrap our identity around our sexual desires, we are hoping it will give us the security and significance that we crave for. But sexual desire is a terrible God. And it lets people down constantly. The number one lie of our world is that if you wrap your identity around your sexual desire, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, then you will find security and significance. But it's an empty promise. The stats on depression and suicide rates for those struggling with sexual identity issues speak for themselves. And it's not just that our society is against them, our recent same-sex marriage vote in Australia smashes that argument to the ground. There is overwhelming support for same-sex couples. No, it's because deep down, we all know that wrapping our identity around sex is not right, and it won't bring you the peace we all crave and we all need. If you struggle with same-sex attraction... I want to say that Jesus offers a better, more satisfying answer to your longings and your desires. I want to say more, but I won't for two reasons. One, homosexuality is mentioned here in our passage, but it's not the main point of our passage, so it's not going to be the main point of this sermon. And two, I will be speaking more on this topic. On July 8th, which I know is a while away, we'll be going through a series called What Would Jesus Say To? And the topic for that week on July 8th is What Would Jesus Say to the Homosexual? 
And if you can't wait until then, I'm always available to chat, and I'm going to be available right at the front here of the hall at the end of the service for any questions that you might have about that topic or anything else today as well. Back to the passage. There's one final thing to notice uh, in Romans chapter 1 before we go on. It's what we see in verse 32. You see, our world is not content with just letting people do whatever they want to do and believe whatever they want to believe. Now they give approval. And in some ways, our world has sharpened its approval. So if you don't do what it approves of, then you're out. If you're not on board with it, then you can find yourself thrown to the figurative fires of public opinion. And in verse 32, we get a a sort of taste of Paul's main point in all of this. Though they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. People know. They already know that God exists and that he is real and that what they do is not right. But they have suppressed this knowledge and they've switched it for their own version of the truth and they approve of everyone who agrees with them. So God is rightly angry. He is rightly angry at all of this. His wrath is being poured out. We, we sometimes think of his judgment as a, as a future thing, but it is also a present reality as well. See, as we see more brokenness in our lives, as we see more brokenness in our world, we are seeing God's judgment. See, one of the things that we need to see is that God's wrath is, not, is an act of God's love. His wrath is an act of his love. It's, and that's not a contradiction. The opposite of love is not anger and wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. It's not caring. The opposite is apathy, unresponsiveness. Would you be happy with a God who saw the Holocaust, six million Jews dead in World War II, and said, it's not my problem? Would you be happy with a God who witnessed the gunning down of 17 high school students in America? And didn't hold anyone accountable? Of course not. You see, wrath is God's justified response. He loves his creation, and when he sees evil wrecking everything, he responds rightly. One of the other things we need to do as we walk away from this passage, uh, this part of the passage, is we need to see that idolatry is something that we all wrestle with, right? We are PhDs. We are all doctors at inventing and justifying our idols. And we are experts at suppressing the truth. Without God, our hearts are perpetual idol factories, constantly pumping out new things to worship. And even for those of us who have faith, idolatry is a constant wrestle. Beware the depth of depravity that lies within each of us, within each of our hearts. It is there, and if we are not thoughtful or careful, we will feed our idols and even give it the veneer of Christianity. There's heaps of examples that I can think of about how we do this. Let, Let me give you one example. Last week, Pastor Ben mentioned that he and I love coffee. It's true, right? In order to be a pastor at SLE Church, you need to be able to do latte art. No, that's actually not true. But in my love of coffee and my love of material things in general, I often find myself justifying things like buying a brand new 
way more expensive, way better looking coffee machine because it will help me serve coffee a little bit quicker and that will help me be hospitable to people who come over. You hear that? You see what I did there? That coffee machine, by the way, is $8,500. It's never going to happen. But there's a million ways that we can do that. So we have to be really careful. Now, as we open up chapter two of our passage, you'll notice that it starts with a therefore. So, what Paul says here, and what he's about to say, connects with what he's just said. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, as you've been reading this along, this might sound a little bit strange. What is going on? Who is this man? Who is this you? What are they judging, and why do they have no excuses? Well, in order to work this out, in order to work out who the you is, we need to read on ahead to pick up the clues in the passage, right? Always look for clues in the passage to see if it will help you understand something that doesn't seem clear. Right? First in chapter 2, verse 2, follow with me. Paul refers to we, as in we know the judgment of God. Right? Jews, just like Paul, know about the judgment of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, he notes that there is hypocrisy in the way that they are judging others. In chapter 2, verse 4, he warns them about presuming upon the riches, kindness, forbearance, and patience of God, right? Only those who are in a relationship with God would know what these things are. In chapter 2, verse 5, he refers to their hard and impenitent or unrepentant hearts. That's an echo of a phrase from the Old Testament about Israel's hard hearts. So who is the you that is now the focus of Paul's attention here? Hard-hearted, unrepentant Jews in this Roman church. Now why are these guys there? Now to work this out, we need a bit of a quick history lesson. I promise it'll be quick. We know from Acts chapter 18 that the church in Rome existed for some time. And it was made up of Jews and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But around 50 AD, Emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome, including Jews who followed Jesus. But around five years later, they were allowed to return. And when they returned, it seems that they found a church which had become very very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And this was causing serious division in the church between non-Jews and Jews. They both follow Jesus, but they have very different ways of going about that. Paul wrote the book of Romans partly to bring unity to this church. And we'll see how this works out from Romans chapter 9 onwards as well. Now with that in mind, think about what we've just read in Romans 1. Paul has just slammed the pagan world, including the world that some of these non-Jewish Christians were a part of in this church. So these hard-hearted Jews, they, they were listening in as Paul was slamming all of these sins in Romans 1. And they're standing there saying, Amen, preach it, brother. And now Paul turns his attention to them. And he says that their judgment is hypocritical. Why? Because they passed judgment on these sins, but they themselves were practicing them. 
Right? They were the Barnaby Joyces of their world. Right? Standing up for family values, judging those who wanted to change that, and at the same time having an affair with one of his starters. Paul adds in verses 4 to 5 that they felt that they were safe from these sins because they were God's in people. They were special. And Paul says, no. God's kindness to you in helping keep you from these sins was meant to lead you to repentance. You look, you're looking at this pagan world and you're tutting away and shaking your head in judgment when you should have been falling on your knees, confessing that you stumble in these sins as well. Now, to make his point further, he, he argues in verses 6 to 16 that God's judgment on them is fair and is right. Now, this section contains some slightly wordy arguments. I'm going to skip over them pretty briefly, partly because they are a little complex to explain in detail, and also because Paul picks up on these same arguments later in the book of Romans and will expand more on them. So, for instance, in verses 6 to 11, he says that God judges according to the work that is done by each individual. Read with me from verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The person who does well seeks glory and honor and immortality. This is the picture of the believer. It is th- it's a throwback to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The person saved and made right with God through faith in Jesus alone. You see, faith in Jesus changes you so that you stop living for yourself and you start living for God by obeying his truths. These hard-hearted Jews, they were not obeying God's truth. And because of that, God's wrath will be on them as well. This is, a, this is what matters to God. What matters to God is not who you are, but what you do. You can see this point made in the rest of the point on the outline. Chapter 2, verse 12 to 16, which is a little convoluted, right? The Apostle Peter, in his letter, says that Paul writes some hard things that are hard to understand. And here's a prime example of that. I'm convinced by Christopher Ash's comments on this. He basically says that the Gentiles, non-Jews, by nature, by definition, do not have the law of God. They don't have the Old Testament laws to guide them. But by God's grace, when their lives are turned around, they begin to live God's way. Even though they aren't Jews, their actions show that they have internalized the law, that they have it written on their hearts by the Spirit of God. So these Gentile converts are an example of what it means to follow the law, despite the lack of of having the law in the first place. Their hearts have changed. They're going in the right direction. That's what matters to God. Verses 17 to 24 of chapter, 20, chapter 2 reveal the main problem these Jews in the Roman church had. Right? They were judging others, but they were not t- taking a sober look at themselves. Paul says that it's no good being a Jew and judging others for not keeping the law if you yourself are not keeping the law. And you see his conclusion in the verses, uh, the conclusion in verses to this point, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Do you get it? 
you guys are so intolerant of other people's bad behavior. And that intolerance is matched by your leniency towards yourself. Right? We're all like that. Our family is running late to get somewhere, and Steph has misplaced her keys. And she's hoping that I'll be lovingly patient as we search for them, but I'm fuming on the inside. Where did you put them last? Keep a track of them, better track of them next time. And then next week, we're running late again. This time, I'm the one who's misplaced my house keys. And as we search, I can feel Steph getting more and more annoyed and stressed. And I'm thinking, hey, why can't you be more patient, huh? We're all like that. And what makes this hypocrisy all the more worse is that others see it and they blaspheme God in response. Point 2D in your outline, I won't go into, into it too much, partly because I've realized what I've said, I've said a lot already, but to flag, there are two main points here that also get explored later. First, true Jewishness is not about being born a Jew, it's about faith and obedience. Right? Paul will pick that up in Romans 9. And second, there's a bit of back and forth argument about the fact that my sin as an unfaithful Jew causes God to be more glorified. So why not do it more? Why not sin more? And Paul will pick this up in Romans chapter 6. But the main point of chapter 2 is this. You religious Jews who think you're fine with God simply because you're Jewish, you're not. If chapter 1 serves to remind us that pagans are guilty before God, Chapter 2 serves to remind us that Jews are guilty before God as well. And in fact, they are more guilty because they should know better. I don't think we have many Jews in our church. I don't think there are any Jews at our church. But in all churches, there are religious types. The Jews in this passage were relying on their religiosity to be right with God their birthright, the fact that they knew God's laws, that they were circumcised. Religious Christians do something similar. They rely on the fact that they've been to church all their lives. I've been baptized. I know the Bible. And in their religiosity, they can begin to look down on others. They feel a little bit more superior and mature next to the Christian who has to look at the contents page of their Bibles to know where to flip. They feel a bit more superior when they find out that the younger Christian hasn't been reading the right stuff. Oh, you haven't read the latest book by Tim Keller? They feel a bit more morally greater compared to their young Christian whose life is a mess. Any of that resonate with you? Paul is saying... Wake up. Your religiosity is as much under God's judgment as the idolatrous pagans in our world. Wake up. Get right with God by trusting Jesus and having a changed heart. By now, you're probably picking up that things are not looking good for humanity. Non-Jewish Gentile pagans are guilty before God. Jews are also guilty before God. We're all guilty. And quite often we just don't get that. We don't see it and we don't understand it. 
Right, a few years ago, Steph and I were on a tour bus in Europe. I met some wonderful people on that trip, including this American woman that I got chatting to on our, one of our final nights. And she said to me, the Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. And then she said, whatever it means to love God, what's more important is that we should concentrate on loving each other. Right, if we all did this, if we all did that, if we all did that better, this world would be a better place, don't you think? And you know, she's right, but she's also wrong. Of course, if we all loved each other better, then this world would be a better place. But the problem is we can't do it. You cannot love all people consistently with all their faults without first loving God rightly. Only when we are in a right relationship with God can we be in right relationship with each other. But our very nature... Our very being as humans is in rebellion against God. We reject the very thing that will make everything better. So like a lawyer summing up his case, Paul lays out the final charges in chapter 3, verses 10 to 20. It's a, it's a flourish of different quotes from the Old Testament to basically say, this is what we are like. Verses 10 to 12, every human heart turns away from God by nature. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Idolatry is not man seeking God. Idolatry is man replacing God. No one seeks truly for God. Then in verses 13 to 14, sinful people speak with bitter tongues. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And it's not just the words that we articulate. It's the words that are on our heart that reveal the deep sinful problem we all have. Finally, verses 15 to 17, sinful people wreck everything. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We know know that there is a lot of good in our world. I don't think the Bible is saying that everything and everyone is evil all the the time, 100% of the time. But it is saying this, human nature is... Humans, by nature, are rebellious against God. And because we have a profoundly broken relationship with God, we suffer the consequences of that sin, brokenness in our lives as we mess things up. We mess up in big ways, right? Major world wars, violence, bloodshed, people walking into a school shooting 17 students dead. And we can mess it up in an infinite number of smaller ways. Selfishness, greed, Lustful thoughts, laziness, laziness, harsh words. This diagnosis of the human heart is 2,000 years old. And over the past two millennia, it has been proven true again and again and again. The human heart is desperately sick. So what can we do about this? And the answer is nothing. Chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. 
is the cherry on top of this filthy cake that we have made for ourselves. The Jews were given the law, but it was given to shut every mouth so that the whole world would be held accountable to God. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Humanity is utterly trapped in sin. We are in bondage. Willingly. To get an idea of how trapped we are, consider the story of Reynold III. Reynold III was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. He lived a life of indulgence and was extremely overweight. He was commonly called by his Latin nickname Crassus, which means fat. After a violent quarrel, Reynold's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around him in Newkirk Castle and promised him he could regain his freedom as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this wouldn't have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size and none was locked or barred. The problem was Reynolds' size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother and each day he sent him a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dieting his way to freedom, Reynold grew fatter. He stayed in the room for 10 years till his brother died in battle. But by then his health was so ruined that he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. That's what we're all like. Many people, like Reynold, look free, maybe even happy. They're doing what they want. They're doing what feels good. But the sad truth is every bite of sin's delicacies only makes them more of a prisoner. When we indulge in a life of sin and do whatever feels good, we're not free. We're slaves to sin. The title of this sermon is The Bad News of the Good News. And you might be wondering, where is the good news in all of this? And the answer is, there is none. If we keep looking to ourselves, if we keep looking to ourselves for the answers, we will not find any. If we try harder, we will fail harder. And if we don't try, we're doomed to fail anyway. Whether you've been to church all your life, whether you're a new or old Christian, whether you're visiting here for the first time, whether you know in your heart that Jesus means nothing to you, we will all stand before God and bring nothing. The only thing we should expect from God is fearful judgment. And so the only thing we can do is cry out to God for mercy. A few years ago, there was a TV show called Can of Worms. It is in it a bunch of celebrities were asked their opinions on big sticky questions because celebrities obviously have all the answers to big sticky questions of life. And one week, one of the final questions asked was, is it okay for me to tell my children that there is no God? One of the panelists was former rugby football player Mark Geyer. Mark said, no, it's not all right. 
Because if you tell your kids there's no God, then there's no hope in this world. And then he shared that when he was brought up as a kid, his mom always told him that there is a God. And because there was a God, there was always hope. Everything was going to be okay. And that was the last question of the night. And on that answer, the audience voted and gave Mark the award for whose opinion they agreed with the most. There is a God and everything is going to be okay. No. There is a God and it is not going to be okay. Let me pray. Father, help us to see our sin rightly. Help us to see the depth of our sin, the depth of our rebellion against you, the depth of the hypocrisy in the way that we judge others. Help us to see that your wrath is being poured out and we can offer nothing to avoid it. So have mercy on us, we cry. Amen.